Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. It's been a long time coming. Finally, the Victorian Government has acknowledged that native forest logging must end. After decades of mismanagement, financial losses and environmental destruction. The Government has announced that all native forest logging will end by 2030, with an immediate end to old growth logging and the planned protection of the Greater Glider. But as the Goongaroo Environment Centre notes, another 10 years of logging and five more years before the industry begins scaling down will not put a stop to Victoria's biodiversity and extinction crisis. Well, the devil is really in the detail. Chris Syringa from the Goongaroo Environment Centre unpacks it for us. It's sort of broken down into four sort of parts. The first part of the announcement was that native forest logging would be ending in 2030 and that money would become available in five years for contractors to transition out of the industry and that that native forest logging isn't sustainable anymore and can't, and can't continue beyond that point. The second part of the announcement was 96,000 hectares of immediately protected areas and that was that's across Victoria, so there were some areas in East Gippsland, really iconic, beautiful places such as the Quark Forest. Um, there's also areas in Tulangi, Merbu North and the Strathbogies. So that announcement was really was really welcome and appeared quite positive. Uh, and then there was the announcement that there would be um, old-growth forest logging would be banned or ceased and that 90,000 hectares of mapped old-growth was, is to be protected. Huge news, absolutely huge. And um, also there was an outcome for the Threatened Greater Glider, an action statement was released. Uh, the species was uplisted to threatened was two years ago. And so, yeah, that, that action statement was a long time coming. So a lot going on in that announcement and it was a relief to finally hear... Uh, year that native forest logging would be ending but yeah there was a lot of the details have been coming out now and looking further into the into the finer yeah details of what's going on and it's not as positive as people initially thought okay so but now some of the information is starting to come out and there's still more information to come out certainly around you know what does already mapped old growth actually mean so let's dig down into that what are the, some of the concerns that Gecko has? What have you found out already? And what are some of the things that you're worried about? The biggest concern, I think, is that currently Vic Forest, the state-owned logging company, are in charge of protecting old-growth forests and determining what is and isn't old-growth. And their method of detection is extremely deceptive. It declassifies old growth in in the field and actually means that old growth can continue to be logged under the misconception that it's not. And the Environment Department 
is also releasing a field tool in order to uh, verify old growth in the field. And while that tool is um, is in some ways stronger than than the Vic Forest tool, really old growth forest is still being logged under yeah under the current state government. So the government come out and said that they said that they're protecting ninety thousand hectares, but they're not exactly sure where that ninety thousand hectares is, how it's going to be protected, and in the mean in the meantime, old growth forest is being logged in East Gippsland right now. So the ninety thousand hectares is what's mapped as as old growth and that is currently available for timber harvesting, and it's it's just completely impractical to field verify. 90,000 hectares of old growth, especially using methods which don't actually find it and mislead people into thinking that, that old growth forest logging has ended when, in fact, it's still continuing in mapped areas, in unmapped areas. And what's really surprising is that there was a new timber release plan released last week which actually has large areas of mapped old growth in new areas available for logging. So the government has made this announcement, but they're still putting logging on the chopping block. And that's really, really concerning. It basically means they're obviously not very confident that they're going to find old growth because it's actually on the list to be logged. And I think as well, I would like to say that um, while some, some environment groups were really excited about the announcement, especially areas such as the Strathbogies. They actually had a lot of areas around the Strathbogies protected, so that was a really incredible moment for community campaigners there. Uh, but there were a lot of groups, even as soon as the announcement came out, it's 10 years is a long time to keep logging forests for paper, and that's what's going what, still going to be happening. It's still going to be logging carbon stores, logging our water supply for the next decade until the wood collapses, basically. So I guess we've got the three sort of main issues that you've just raised there, Chris, which is the fact that the body responsible for determining what is and isn't old growth, which the government has said they're going to uh, stop all old growth logging, the organisation responsible for that is Vic Forests, the very company which undertakes the logging. So the logger is deciding what they can and can't log, making the rules. And then we've got the state government releasing the timber release plan, which includes already mapped old growth on there. So then seemingly an immediate contradiction. And then, of course, the big question of, well, if you're going to keep native forest logging going for another 10 years, what's Mm. that going to mean? You mentioned the word collapse. So let's talk about what does... What would another 10 years of, of native forest logging look like? And the context that we're talking right now is that a lot of the continent's on fire. <laughs> so yeah. there's the relationship of fire and logging, which we probably really need to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And with all of the, these conversations and um, being had about the links between bushfire and, and climate change and also the importance of forests in mitigating the effects of climate change, so it's actually crucial that these forests are protected. Now, the mountain ash forests in the Central Highlands are some of the most carbon-dense in the world, and 
not only are the forests important for mitigating climate change, also by logging them, you're actually drying out the soil, you're making them more prone to bushfires. And if a, if there's a large bushfire over the summer that could potentially wipe out a large area of, of mountain ash, which is an endangered ecosystem, we could see the, the logging industry collapse much, much earlier than 2030. And this is because a lot of the areas have already been burnt, they're overlogged, they've been completely mismanaged, and there just isn't the timber there to keep going until 2030, especially with the risk of bushfire, especially with the risks of, of climate change. It's really quite concerning. Now, what about the response of industry and workers? So, obviously, uh, so the CFMEU Manufacturing Division, the Forestry Division of the Union, is unhappy about the announcement. Obviously quite mm-hmm. concerned for their members' jobs and livelihood, which is entirely understandable. How do we rate the government's transition plan for those workers? Yeah, un- understandably, it's a difficult announcement to grapple with if you yeah if you've been working in the timber timber industry for many years but I do I do think that many timber workers are very aware of the fact that they the wood is running out and there have been multiple news articles coming out where uh, timber workers who have who have left the industry early are saying we knew it was collapsing we wanted to get out it's not sustainable I think the industry must come to terms with the fact that they have overlogged and it cannot continue. It cannot continue. And I think that it's very irresponsible of the government to not have payments available or financial support available for another five years. It means that these workers have been told, oh, your your industry is, is, won't be in existence in 2030 but you have to stay in it for the next five years or you're locked in it for the next five years and, we, and we're not going to financially support you until then. And that's really awful because I think some workers would be, would be wanting to leave now. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. We're speaking with Chris Syringa about the Victorian State Government's historic announcement to end native forest logging by 2030. But the devil is in the detail. Up next, Chris unpacks what the Greater Glider Action Statement means and why we should look past the headline. Gecko are really sceptical about the action statement and whether it's actually going to protect Greater Gliders. There was an existing protection for Greater Gliders where if you found more than 10 in a kilometre Maybe you're given a, a 100 hectare SBZ, and that protection is actually set to be replaced by this, the new protections outlined in the action statement, which say that if five greater gliders are found, then they'll only log 40% of the forest. So they'll still be logging areas where greater gliders are found, and once that becomes law, that will actually replace the previous protections, which were better. So... We're really concerned about about the outcomes of that and uh, unsure at this point about how to engage the government. Do you think this is in response to successful litigation? Absolutely. I mean, Gecko has used that 
those protections to protect hundreds of hectares of forest. And, yeah, I think that that's concerning for the government. Yeah, and the areas in the, the IPAs, the immediate protection areas, some of them don't actually include areas which have the highest density of greater gliders in East Gippsland. So it's really strange. The government has announced these protection areas and, and have linked them to the Greater Glider Action Statement saying, oh, we're protecting greater gliders, we protected this area. But those, act- those areas do not actually contain the highest densities of gliders. It's, yeah, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And if this Greater Glider Action Plan is incorporated into legislation, uh, so you're saying that it would really... Uh, hamper attempts to save uh, critical greater glider habitat. And if we're thinking this is perhaps a response by the government to very successful legal challenges by uh, Gecko and other groups, is it somewhat of a bit of a Trojan horse, you know, sort of in terms of sneaking that in amongst uh, amongst the bigger plan to end native forest logging? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's something that's not the easiest thing to understand reading through the policy documents and I think that the confusion around the details is exactly what they want. They, they don't want people to understand what's going on or how, how these things are going to be implemented and I don't think the government actually knows how, how these are going to, any of these commitments are going to be implemented. Considering the IPAs actually, they're not in national parks, they're not formally protected and the government has no plan on how they're actually going to formally protect these forests. And it's the same with the Greater Glider, where how is it going to be legislated? Same with the old growth. How is this going to be legislated? What sort of uh, consequences are there going to be for Vic Forest if they breach these laws and, and, and log old growth forests? It's all extremely vague and the government have been largely silent since the announcement. Mm, perhaps strategically vague. <laughs> Absolutely. It's easy. It's, it's very easy to come out with some big fanfare and then, and then walk away or, yeah, be silent on the issue and not have to answer the questions about the details and how things are actually going to be implemented. It's extremely concerning. And I think that a lot of people are aware and know that the fight's not over these forests have not been protected and we still need to keep campaigning, we still need to hold them accountable. Chris Seringa from the Goongaroo Environment Centre. To sign the petition and take action, go to geco.org. Well, you perhaps wouldn't know it, but urban heatwaves are the most fatal kind of natural disaster, killing more people in Australia than bushfires, floods and cyclones combined. As we head towards yet another record-breaking year of heating globally, heatwaves are set to become an ever-increasing threat. Margarita Windich has been researching the social vulnerabilities associated with urban heatwaves, looking specifically at how age and gender affects mortality. The heatwaves in in post-industrial societies are responsible for something like 95% of all deaths from natural disasters. And in Australia, we've had more deaths from heatwaves than all other natural hazards combined since colonialisation. And the International Panel of Climate Change has also found that um, Australia needs to expect more people 
to be dying from heat waves in the future. And I guess what the research has uncovered is that the vast majority who are victims of heat waves are actually older people. And maybe that's partly why there's so little talk about it, because, um, you know, in a kind of neoliberal society, um, older people are not necessarily valued because they're seen as unproductive. So um, that probably explains to some extent why there's not more uproar when we know that so many people die and um, just want to outline, like in 2009, when we had the horrendous bushfires in Victoria that killed about 174 people, we had nearly double that of uh, people who died in the heat wave that occurred at that time. But nobody really talked about that. And, and I think that's, that warrants a lot of investigation. It's interesting that you bring up the bushfires, Margarita. I've been reading a document called The Impacts on Women's Health of Climatic and Economic Disasters. It's from 2014. discusses uh, bushfires and notes that in bushfires and, and post-bushfires, men are often seen um, as heroic and are valorised. And the work of women and also the effects on women is often ignored or downplayed which is interesting when also talking about heat waves as well. Oh, oh, look, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the... Re- I mean, look, there's there, there still, I would suggest, there's the research in sort of around urban heat waves and social vulnerability is still more in its infancy. And I think partly it is definitely, I would suggest, connected to the fact that it's mainly older people who are the majority of victims. Uh, so that's connected to our current political state of affairs. But... What this research has also uncovered is that extreme heat risks, they are uh, old age, gender, social isolation and systemic disadvantage, which what I call the quadruple whammy. Um, And um, women, we have now enough evidence that we know that overall in most kind of urban heat waves, there's a higher rate of death for older women than for men. And it's not just um, older women, but I guess it's more specifically, like I said, older women who are poor and socially isolated. So we've seen some of the statistics, for instance, in there was a really, really brutal heat wave in 2003 in France where about 15,000 people died just in Paris alone. 65% of the victims were women. We've also uncovered in cities like um, in cities in Italy and Spain Uh, there was a higher death rate for poor and isolated elderly women than for men. And in Australia, too, research has uncovered that it's women that are age 75 plus who are most at risk of heat waves. So I guess the question we can put to, why is it that we don't know more? Why is it that the research is still quite limited on that? Because it does will affect in how we can prevent these deaths because they are all what's called excess deaths. They are otherwise people who might still live another five or ten years, and 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 you know, and and, and I think this is important that we highlight this. That in some ways, um, the right is taken away from this particular subgroup of society to you know see out their their you know end of life in a dignified and and beautiful way, and and that's one of the reasons I'm also very interested in this work. What we're seeing is more and more that older women are becoming more and more poor. 
Um, and research has found that um, we have a significant growing number of Australian women who are heading into retirement age that are falling into poverty and housing stress. And because also of lack of superannuation, of high living costs, expensive housing, and you know the big wage gap that's played out over decades. And what that means is that poverty and housing stress, all of that, are actually increasing women's vulnerability to future heat waves. So um, this is an important area for us, I guess, as feminists and as, as you know, as activists, to kind of intervene in, to actually look at what we can do. And and I think by actually, even though old age is a key factor, I guess because of the aging process in people, you know, it changes their thermal regulation and all of that. But what we've started to see in a lot of the, in a lot of the kind of stories that have, have come through through ethnographic work and you know people working in communities, is that a lot of the key risk factors apart from old age are actually socially constructed. So what it means is it gives us the chance to actually say we can denaturalize disaster. So in other words, um, the, the 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 heat waves that the high death rates of heat waves could be actually avoided if we look into what these other factors are that are outcomes of an unequal political system, I would suggest. I think it's really interesting the phrase that you use, denaturalising disaster, because that really brings up the fact that we look at natural disasters as one purely natural and unavoidable and in a strange sense, neutral and apolitical. Mm. Look, and I think by actually saying, oh, my God, you know, this is happening also in heat waves, so many people die, it's kind of, but by saying neutral, we kind of say it's kind of avoidable. No? And by saying it's kind of unavoidable or inevitable, we are basically saying uh, the kind of the different systems of oppression that people experience that expose them to higher risk, that makes them die earlier, such as, you know, sexism, um, uh, other social disadvantage, which is through class or even, you know, race, we're kind of saying that's okay and we don't actually need to look into changing government policies or structures. And I think by actually looking deeper into the social kind of elements of heatwave fatalities, we can also see the role of the state in helping to create this or not working hard enough to avoid them. So, for instance, we do know uh, through some of the work that's being done that there's clusters of, you can say, in urban areas too where people are more vulnerable to heat. And what are these clusters? They are in suburbs that have lower socioeconomic um, uh, you know, uh, resources uh, where there's more older people living in maybe also public housing that's badly constructed or there's no kind of escape from the heat. And also in densely built up areas that we know track the heat. Um, so what is government doing about this? You know, this is the question we need to ask. I mean, what can the community do about it? But also, we need to put responsibility on our federal and state governments to say, what are you actually doing in terms of public health policy to actually minimise the high death rates we are experiencing in these disasters, which are just about utterly avoidable? 
turning our attention to climate change explicitly now, what can people who are concerned about climate change, people who are involved in environmental activism, learn from uh, your research and the introduction of a feminist perspective on heat waves? Look, I, I think you know a lot of climate activists already have wonderful knowledge, and I have learned from a lot of them. And hopefully, I mean, one of the things I can help contribute through talking about the experiences of, you know, um, marginalised groups in societies, and especially in this case, older women, is um, that in order for us to reduce um, the kind of high fatality rates, we need to look at what's wrong with the current context of our politics and how we live as a community. One of the key protective factors to avoid death in the heat wave for older people is actually social connectivity. So in other words, what I would argue to for climate activists, for feminists, everybody, we need to rebuild a sense of community. And that's counterintuitive to neoliberalism. Because neoliberalism, which in lots of ways I would argue, is actually you know, very responsible for climate change and heat waves, fundamentally we need to rebuild community and by actually rebuilding community we connect with each other we can learn from each other and we can uh, develop I would argue a kind of common sense of what kind of future we want to create and that will also give us uh, encouragement and strength to actually tackle um, our socioeconomic system which I really think is, is at the heart of a lot of our crisis. We need a rapid transition to renewable energy. I think that is fundamental for us, a rapid transition to renewable energy. And then we need to start creating spaces for people that are safe and cool. A lot of people can't afford, for instance, to just cool their little places with air conditioning. It's too expensive for them. But also, it actually doesn't reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I think we need to look at how can we create community spaces where we connect socially isolated elderly women and at the same time we can be together, cool down together, lives and work together to create a better society for our future. Margarita Windich. And that conversation is taken from a longer interview I did with her back in July 2016 from an episode called Denaturalising Disaster. You can find a link to it with the podcast of this show. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you've missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you've been listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support, and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3CR. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more... Earth Matters.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.